You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, uh, 26 through 31, uh, the air conditioning unit that sits outside behind me that covers this part of the sanctuary finally went kaput this week. And uh, so we have the one in the back that's working. So what that means is you all in the last half of the building are probably going to feel pretty good today. I'm probably going to be sweating bullets. So, uh, and maybe some of you in the front rows here as well. But uh, it, it's okay. We've got a nice cool day outside and, and we know God's going to bless us regardless of what's going on. Uh, say it with me. We're in Hebrews because we want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. We want to serve Jesus greater. I get asked sometimes, why do you preach entire books of the Bible through? And I've done that several times here uh, in the last four years. I'll do it several more times in however many years I'm granted here at this place. It's what we do on Sunday nights. Right now we're currently going through the, the the entire book of Mark with an emphasis on Jesus' words and teachings. And I often tell people there's three reasons I prefer to do this. Number one is it helps us to um, avoid the error of taking Scripture out of context. It helps us to avoid the error of taking a piece of Scripture or a singular verse or maybe a couple and extracting them from the context of the letter it's written in and applying them the way we want to apply them. Secondly, as a pastor, it helps me to avoid doing what I would call knee-jerk sermons, meaning something happens on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, and I decide, oh, because that happened, I need to do this. And there are times that I've done that. There have been a, a few times here at Providence that I've, I've changed the, the Sunday message, particularly as we've had some times of grief and sorrow, and I've changed the message and spoken to that. And Last week, the Lord had me change our Lord's Supper message the morning of, and so I'm not, I'm not immune to or uh, un, unavailable to change, but I, I want to not have a knee-jerk reaction in terms of what I prepare on Sunday mornings. And then thirdly, and probably the most important reason, is that going through a book of the Bible requires us to take a look at tough passages. Two weeks ago, we were in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through um, 25, and uh, it was a challenging sermon, yes, a challenging message, yes, but but nonetheless kind of of uplifting, that we would encourage one another, we'd be involved in the body of the church, that we would see these things happening in our lives. And it'd be real easy, and I'm just going to be honest, it'd be real nice to get to 26 through 31 and go, eh, let's just leapfrog that. But when we're looking at the whole counsel of God, when we're looking at the summation of his word and what it means, we don't get to skip over tough passages. This is another tough passage. This is the third major warning passage in the book of Hebrews. We had one in chapter 2. We had one in chapter 6. We've had little uh, smaller bits of warning language in chapters 3. And then again, we'll see it in chapter 12 as we get into that after the first of the year. But this is the last of the really big warning passages. And I want us to to learn, just a moment, from the previous warning passages that we've dealt with. One of the things we learned is that is that particularly for the context of this letter and the audience that the author is writing to, the warning passage had an emphasis on the foolishness 
of them returning to their Jewish tradition, heritage, faith, which essentially translated to the Old Covenant ways, and abandoning Jesus. Abandoning and rejecting the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. Secondly, they have an emphasis on perseverance, not perfection. These warning passages have an emphasis on perseverance, on enduring, on on keeping the faith, on on going through the long journey, however long your journey may be on this earth, and and keeping through that to the end as evidence that God has actually done a work in you and me. We often talk about a profession of faith, and rightly so, because the Bible definitely speaks of the need to have a profession of our faith. We should also be talking greatly about a progression of our faith. That a profession of faith in in Jesus Christ leads to a progression of that faith in my life. Not perfection, but a progression. And then the third emphasis is that the author has continually pointed out through these warning passages that his belief was for his audience that they were indeed saved persons. Hebrews chapter 6, 9 through 12, for example, as he follows up that warning passage, he, he essentially says, but we don't believe this way about you. Next week, we're going to see a similar thing. When we get into uh, the last part of chapter 10 next week, he's going to follow up these difficult verses with, again, an encouraging word that he believes that what he's describing in 2631 is not applicable to those who he was writing to. But we lean on these points of emphasis and then this final one, that the biblical baseline is this, that those who are truly saved in and by Christ cannot lose their salvation. They may struggle. They may struggle with sin. They may have bad days and bad seasons where we don't feel very saved. But if saved by and in Christ and by his work on the power of the cross and by his blood, they cannot lose that which God has gifted them in Jesus So those are the baselines, those are the points of emphasis that we want to have as we look at these passages today, these warning verses today. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, follow along with me if you will. He writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Notice that from the very beginning, what this is presented as is a contrasting set of statements to the previous verses that we looked at two weeks ago. If you want to just kind of glance there at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we talked last that time and two weeks ago about the confidence to enter the holy places, that the blood of Jesus had accomplished that for us, that we could draw near in full assurance of faith, that we could hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, that we would stir up one another to love and good works, and, and we would encourage one another and meet with one another. 
And we would do all of that based upon people who had tasted and known that God is good through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the very beginning of this next section that begins in verse 26 are contrasting statements. For if we choose to do this instead of the previous verses, this is what awaits us. Now we'll get to what awaits us in just a moment, but let's begin to walk through it there again. Verse 26, the first question we probably obviously have is, For if we go on sinning deliberately, what does it mean to sin deliberately? New International International Version says deliberately keep on sinning. The New Living says deliberately continue sinning. The King James and New King James say if we sin willfully, regardless of your translation, the implication here is that it is a choice, that it is a conscious effort to engage in this. And so what does it mean to sin deliberately? I will say this to begin. This is sin that only church people can commit. Now notice I didn't say saved people. We'll get more to that in a moment. This is a sin only church people can commit, or if you don't like the word church, people who are a part of a community of faith can commit. Why do I say this? Because again, look at the verse. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In other words, what the author implies to tell us here is that at the very least, these people that he is talking about in this warning passage are people who have been engaged with a community of faith, a church, however you want to describe it, and they have received, acknowledged, been made aware of the truth, and the truth, of course, is that which refers back to the gospel and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. This is not written to describe someone who you meet on a street corner and ask them if they're saved or not, and they say no, and you hand them a gospel tract, and then you leave, and they've heard it once. This is to describe people who have been engaged in a body, engaged in a community, and they've received it, but they've walked away from it. The Bible speaks of this in numerous places. I'm going to give you three today. Jesus speaks of it himself in Mark chapter 4 as he explains the parable of the sower. And he says, beginning verse 16, These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. He says two of those soils in that parable of the soil are people who receive it, who acknowledge it, who even receive it with joy, but they have no root, they have no foundation, they don't progress in their profession. In the letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, Paul, speaking about God's wrath coming on the unrighteousness, has talked in verses 19 and 20 about that even by God's creation, he has made himself known and visible that all men are without excuse. But listen to what he then says, beginning verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth that they had been exposed to, the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, which is themselves, rather than the creator. And then from Peter, 2 Peter, he's speaking in chapter 2, 2 Peter, about false prophets and teachers that would infiltrate the church community. And he says this, beginning verse 20, If after they've escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they become entangled in them again and are overcome, their last state has been worse than their first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment given to them. The Bible makes it clear that there are going to be people, that there have been people through the history of church who have received, who have been made aware, who have acknowledged this understanding, this, this comprehension of the gospel and of Jesus Christ and his work and through either persecution or tribulation or the worries of the world or the desires for riches or whatever case may be, no root takes hold, no progression takes place. And we have another clue even from the context here of Hebrews 10. Look back at Hebrews 24 and 25 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. This again tells us that these are, this is sin that only church folk can commit. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. See, there had already been some in this little community who had received the word, who had received the knowledge, who had heard it, who had been made aware of it, but who had now begun to abandon it. And understand this, one of the first steps in abandoning Jesus is abandoning the body of Christ. I don't mean you can't ever miss a Sunday. I don't mean that if you're physically incapable of attending a Sunday or, or a Sunday night or whatever the case may be, that that means you're inevitably going to inject, uh, reject Christ. But if we begin to reject the body of Christ, I don't need the church. I don't need the fellowship. I don't need the iron sharpening iron. I don't need the gathering of people together to praise and worship. I don't need all that. That is the first step, unlike most likely, in a journey to eventually saying, I don't need Jesus. I've seen too often in the times of marriages, the first step to a divorce begins with, I don't really need to spend time with him or her. And if that has that kind of effect on a marriage, what does that have effect on the body of Christ? So if it's a sin only church people can commit, what is it? What is this deliberately sinning deal? Well, I want to tell you what it's not to begin with. It's not the occasional sin of the saint, even a deliberate sin of the saint. If you leave here today and, and you go out to eat or you go home and, and, and maybe here today or maybe at that restaurant or maybe once you get home, you get a hold of a really juicy piece of gossip. And you decide, oh, I'm going I'm to talk about it at lunch. I'm going to get on the phone. I'm going to shoot a text or an email or a Facebook message. I'm going to share. And you begin to share that, that which you heard by somebody who heard by somebody who heard. That, by definition, has made you, according to 1 Corinthians 6.10, a reviler or a slanderer, which is an accuser or an attacker of the reputation of a person. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 is that person, among many other sinful persons, who that's their lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
But for the saint who even chooses deliberately to do that, as the Holy Spirit wakes us up and says, wait a minute, that's not for you. That action is not befitting a saint who's been saved by Jesus and leads us to repentance and forgiveness. We accept that from God and we repent and we move forward. Now I want to say as a side note to that, understand this, that's available to every saint in Jesus. But that occasional sin, whether it be slander or something else, should stop us in our tracks. It is what Paul calls remorse, sorrow, that leads to repentance. Not remorse, oh, I got caught. Not remorse, oh, well, uh, they found out, but I'll probably just do it again next week. That occasional deliberate sin, even of the saint, should stop us in our tracks because it is not who God wants us to be. So it is, by virtue of our context here, this. This deliberately sinning is deliberate and full-scale rejection and abandonment of the gospel, the person, the work of Jesus Christ, and the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what this deliberate sinning is. Look again at verses 28 and, 20, or 28 and 29. My apologies, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He goes on to say, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? He uses the example between the old covenant and the new. And a place that he could point to, for example, is in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, where God says, on the basis of two or three witnesses, if this evil has been done, you shall put that person to death. No mercy, no second chance. Physical death, removal from the, from the community of faith. But here in the New Covenant understanding, what we're talking about is not a physical de- death or separation, but a spiritual death or separation. And so he uses that as an analogy, as a contrast, but then he talks about if that was the case in the Old Covenant, how much more does punishment await the person who's done these things? And we're going to look at those three words specifically. He says, first, how much more worse punishment, verse 29, the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. The word trampled means to despise, to reject, to neglect. It was an ancient uh, Far Eastern uh, understanding that a way sometimes to talk about an enemy or an enemy of yours who was coming at you was to say things like, he has raised his foot against me. Psalm 41.9, the writer of the psalm there says of his enemy, he has lifted up his heel against me. And the understanding of that was he's done so so that he may stomp on me. That is the understanding of the word trample, that we have trampled the Son of God. It's not just that we've despised, rejected, and neglected him. We've trampled him. We've stomped on him. We have accusations about him. We twist his words. We lie about him. He was just a good teacher. And he says, this deliberate sin of trampling the Son of God is the first part there. He Secondly, he uses the word profane. Who has profaned the blood of the covenant. Profane is just this conscious choice 
to say specifically here of the blood of the covenant and the blood of Jesus that it was just ordinary blood. That it didn't have power. It didn't have meaning. It didn't have effect. In other words, what he's really saying when a person does this is Jesus was just an ordinary man. And understand how easily we can profane the blood of Jesus. A revivalist preacher by the name of Charles G. Finney, uh, the, the, the man that is widely um, acknowledged as being the one who introduced what we call the altar call, people walking down an aisle to come to faith in Jesus. He was a man who did not believe that Christ died substitutionary for our sins, but he believed that Christ died just as an example of how serious God took sin. You may think to yourself, well, there's no real difference between the two, are there? Well, there absolutely is a difference between the two. Because if Christ did not die substitutionary in my place, then the blood of Jesus and all that the Scriptures talk about the blood of Jesus and its application and its power do not apply to me. There has been a way of mercy made, according to Charles G. Finney, but it is a way of mercy that simply says, I look at the cross and I'm inspired to live a better moral life, which is not the gospel. That's why he invented the altar call. Because if you preach like that, all you have to do is every Sunday or every Tuesday or every Thursday or whenever you preach, just look out at the crowd and go, now which of you have lived perfectly moral this week? Oh, none of you? Will everybody come? And there are times to come. There are times to come before the Lord. There are times to come and share and make decisions. There are times to come for prayer. But it is not out of a, oh, I didn't live up to the standard this week. That is a wrong and a profane way to look at the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he says, not only have they trampled and profaned, but there towards the end of verse 29, they have outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged is insulted. It's mocked. And the Holy Spirit of God, called here the spirit of grace, administers and applies the grace of God to us through the blood of Christ. And to mock him, to insult him, to outrage him, is to mock and insult the way of salvation that God has made. We see an example of this in Matthew 12. And in that story in Matthew 12, Jesus heals this demon-possessed, blind, and mute man. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, gather around and say, oh, it must surely be by the power of Satan that this man does this work, not the power of God outraging the spirit of grace, insulting the spirit of grace, mocking the spirit of grace to suggest that what Jesus has done is by the power of Satan rather than the power of God. We can sum up these three ideas in this way. Deliberately sinning, as described here in this context, is having some knowledge, reception, awareness of the truth, of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, and then willfully, fully rejecting it in our lives. And so what's the result of that? Look again at verses 26, 27, 30, and 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What is the result of willfully, deliberately rejecting Christ? The gospel, his work, it is judgment. Why? Because verse 26 tells us there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now that does not mean that the grace of God has an expiration date on you. It does not mean that the grace of God has a warranty applied to it or that it only covers X number of sins. What it means to say that there is no longer a sacrifice is to say that for those who who religiously reject Christ, deliberately reject Christ and the gospel and his ways, there will not be another sacrifice. There will not be another cross. There will not be another God-man option to come. There will not be another religious system of works to make you good enough before God. There will not be a second chance for you after you die because that which God has instituted as the way, the truth, the life, you've rejected. And to go on doing that means that you only have an expectation of judgment. Now, our first thought of that probably seems in this culture, well, that seems harsh. That seems unfair. Well, I want to address that to two different groups of people. First, to this idea of churched people. Church people who've had some knowledge, who've had some awareness, who've had some rejection, uh, acceptance of the, of the word, but have begun to or are fallen away with no root and no progression. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, Paul writes this to Timothy, talking about workers who are unapproved by God. And he talks about people who are irreverent and babbling and leading ungodliness. And he says, among them are two, he names, Manius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Why is judgment for the churched person, not the saved person, but the churched person who rejects, who moves away, who does this? These individuals, according to 2 Timothy's letter, have not just rejected it for themselves, but in rejecting it, it says, Paul says, they have begun to upset the faith of some. That upsetting the faith is literally a word that means overturning the faith. When Jesus turns the tables over in the gospel accounts in the temple, the same word is there is used there for his, his action of turning those tables over as is used here of these two individuals. And so when a churched person, when a person who has awareness, acknowledged, has even said, yes, I've received that, begins to do this, understand it never just affects them. We often put pastors on pedestals, and I could do a whole series on why you shouldn't do that. But we often do. And if I were to stand up here at the 11 o'clock hour next week and say, you know, after much deliberation this week, I've really decided this Christianity thing's a whole lot of bunk. And Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of swooned and fell away and they hid his body and he wasn't really born of a virgin and so on and so forth. And if I was to do all that next week, some of you, thank God, who have strong foundation, who have strong roots, some of you would go, you're wrong and you would continue on in your faith. 
But some of you would not. Because you tie everything you believe in to what the pastor says. It's the same way for these two that Paul warned about in Timothy. People had tied their faith into what these men were teaching and preaching and now they were teaching and preaching something antithetical to the gospel and it was overturning the faith of other people. Why is God's judgment required for churched people who do this? Because their abandonment of the faith never only affects them. Secondly, a person with knowledge should know better. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 12 on our Sunday night Bible study and it was the, it's the passage where Jesus is warning about the scribes and talking about how they, they love to be seen in their flowery robes and their flowing robes and they love to be in the marketplace and have people greet them and they, they devour widows' houses. We talked about what that meant was they would go and they essentially would talk widows into giving the temple all the money that the widow had and they would pocket a whole lot of it for themselves. And when Jesus pronounces judgment on those religious persons, he says they will receive the greater condemnation. People who have awareness, who have understood, who've been exposed to it, and who have said, yes, I believe in it, should know better. And because of those two reasons, that it only never affects them, and they should know better, is why judgment awaits them. But secondly, for people who aren't churched, who've not been a part of the community of faith, but just simply reject. That rebuttal often comes in this way. Why would a God send people to hell? And there's one great truth that we need to understand is that hell was not created for you. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is speaking about the final judgment, and he's, he's going through and separating the sheep from the goats. He says in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left who are the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is not a place that's been prepared for mankind. God does not choose to send anyone to hell. People go to hell by their own choosing. And understand, you might say to that, well, why would anyone choose hell? It's not that they necessarily choose hell, but they choose everything else other than Jesus. They choose everything else other than this gift that God has given us. They choose everything else other than the gospel. They choose their own desires. They choose their own thoughts. They choose their own ways. They reject the wisdom of God and choose their own wisdom. And judgment awaits them. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God will say to them, thy will be done. And understand the deliberate sinning of rejecting Christ. The deliberate sinning of rejecting the gospel. The deliberate sinning of choosing to say that my way is better only results in judgment. In the end, good people don't go to heaven and bad people don't go to hell. Saved, made righteous and holy by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, those people go to heaven. Every other person who rejects it goes to hell. And judgment is a revelation of God's love and justice. And you might wonder, how can judgment, how can talk of fire, how can talk of, of torture, how can talk of torment be a revelation of God's love and justice? It's the revelation of his love because in his love he's provided an escape. In his love he's provided a way out. In his love he has sent Jesus 
That all that is required of a person is to say, I have faith and trust in Him, and then progress in that faith and endure to the end and understand that He alone is the way. It's the revelation of His justice because His holiness demands justice. And when a person rejects Christ, he has rejected the only thing standing between him and hell. You want to think about it in these terms. If a person stood convicted and condemned before a judge in a court of law, and that judge said, I I have heard from the, the prosecutors that they've offered you a plea bargain. They've offered you a deal that'll keep you out of prison. Do you accept it? And that that belligerent, convicted criminal, that that self-righteous, my way's better criminal, says to the judge, no, 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 I do not want to accept that. Let me go to prison. And the judge pleads with him, but they've made a way for you. There's a plea bargain in place. You don't have to do this. But in that pride and that self-righteousness and that my way is better, that criminal stands before the judge and says, no, I refuse it. Send me to prison. It is the same manner here. God's holiness demands justice, but His love has created a way. And that way is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that judgment is not to be taken lightly. Not to be taken lightly even by those of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, saints made holy by Jesus. It's not to be taken lightly of us as well. Please hear me. Those of you who know that Christ has made your way, we do not gleefully talk of wicked people finally getting what they deserve when it comes to judgment. For if we do, it shows just how immature we are when understanding the grace that has been applied to us who are not getting what we deserve. Paul wrote of his fellow Jews who did not believe as he had believed that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Judgment should move the saint to praise and worship of the one who is saved while simultaneously breaking our hearts for those around us who are not. Judgment should move the sinner to repentance, to acknowledging and walking in the truth of the gospel, not for fear of hell, but out of recognition and acknowledgement of God's great love. Fear drives us to make decisions, but only love drives drives us to make change. And God has made a way for even the strongest enemy against him today. The cross is the intersection of grace and mercy, of love and justice. Dare not trample, profane, or outrage the gospel, the work and person of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.